blessing as we learn from His Word this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for our dear sister that through horrible and traumatic circumstances, Lord, you watch over, you protect, you preserve. Lord, screaming to the surface is the truth that all things, even horrible things, all things work together for good to those that love God and are called. Father, I would ask that we, at this very moment, as a body, as we strive to continue to learn, as we strive, Lord, to be more and more conformed to the image of our Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would work amongst us, that we would understand very clearly what it is that you're teaching us through your word. We ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified, use, Lord, a weak mind and tongue to teach, Lord, only your truth, that you'd be glorified, that you'd be heard, that you would be focused on. We ask this in the strong name of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. We hear a lot. We hear a lot today about crying. But we do not hear a lot about mourning. We're going to look at the distinction, the difference between I need a good cry. This is a cry baby. We're to cry like we mean it. We hear these phrases all the time. And that's, in a sense, a part, but it's not entirely. What we're looking at this morning, as we return back to Matthew chapter 5, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. We look at these Beatitudes, Beatitudes. They are the most well-known portion of Jesus' teaching, and yet they are also the most misunderstood part of Jesus' teaching. And the reason is, is that they're written in a a form of, of, of language, as we noted last week, as a paradox. A paradox is this. Although it may sound absurd, a paradox means it may even sound self-contradicting. When it is explained, it makes perfect sense. It's well-founded, and ultimately it is true. Last week, we looked at the first beatitude, and we made it very, very clear. If you want entrance under any condition into the kingdom of God... If you ever desire to be with God in all of His wonder and His splendor and His glory, it means what? It means literally giving up everything. A willingness to go completely to Jesus empty-handed, recognizing what is this term, being poor in spirit. It means what? It refers directly to our spiritual bankruptcy. The only way... We can make it to the kingdom of God is saying what? I have nothing in and of myself that makes sense. The harsh reality based out of Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. Paul writes this to the church at Rome. This is hard. This is, this is tough language in America in the 21st century. This is reality. Romans 7 verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Does that not fly 
in the face of every message that you hear in the world today. But it's true. First, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This morning we come to the second Beatitude again. It is presented, as I talked last week, as, as what? Ex-cathedra. Jesus actually sits down when he speaks. means that he speaks with authority. And again, it is a complete paradox. Christ, if you recall, is preaching. And, and the disciples have followed him. They're sitting close. A crowd has followed them. They're leaning in as he speaks this truth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew chapter 5. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As we discussed last week, the word blessed or makarios translates happy. And this is not a pleasure, a fleeting pleasure. Pleasure does not last This is happiness. Happiness is intimately connected to contentment. Think about this. When we stand before God, what? Forgiven and redeemed in Christ, we can be completely content. Now we ask, what is Jesus talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Happy are the sad. Not only is it the ultimate paradox, it's an anomaly. It's, it's an enigma. It's shrouded in mystery. It's like I will never, ever, ever understand what Jesus is saying. If blessed, why do we mourn? And if we mourn, how in the world could we ever be blessed? And I don't know about you, but why are we even talking about mourning? Is that just not a dark, depressing subject when we come to God's house on God's day and the sun is shining and we talk about mourning? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be one huge celebration, one big party of sunshine and blue skies and flowers that are blossoming and birds that are singing? Isn't that the life of a Christian? Apparently not. Not according to what we see in Scripture. In the Arab world, there's actually a saying that says this, all sunshine makes a desert. All sunshine, we love the sunshine, all sunshine makes a desert dry. Death. Be assured there are times and there will be times of weeping and mourning and the life of a Christian is is no exception to that. Once more, it is quite clear that we have something in this idea here. It is what? It is entirely spiritual in its meaning. Let me, again, just clarify the distinction between what it, what it means to mourn and what it means to cry, to cry, you, you blat, you blubber. You have these terms. You bawl when you cry. What happens with this idea? Hit your thumb with a hammer. Fall down and break a leg. And what happens? We cry in pain. Right? 
other circumstances, you flunk a test that you studied for, you lose a ball game, you don't get the job that you wanted to get, or you got the job that you thought you wanted, and now you hate that job. What do you do? You cry in exhaustion, in frustration, in, in exasperation. What are other reasons? You watch a tear-jerker movie. You hear of lost love. You hear of, of a wandering puppy. And what happens? You cry in sadness. What is it? You're just sitting there and all of a sudden your, your eyes begin to blink a little bit faster. And you get this kind of odd feeling down in your stomach. And then it kind of turns into a lump in your throat. And then, and then what? It's just like something erupts. Things moisten. And tears form, and tears can actually run, run down your cheeks. There can even be an eruption of tears. Let me say first and foremost, it's okay to cry. God created us with emotion all the way through Scripture. We're not saying crying is bad. There's examples. Abraham wept when his wife Sarah died. David cried like a baby when his rebellious son Absalom was killed in battle. And that was an ungodly man. He still wept. Jeremiah wept when he saw his beloved nation fall. Jeremiah wept so much he was known as what? The weeping or the crying prophets. Paul cried when he said farewell to his good friends at Ephesus. They cried too. Jesus, the bravest and the strongest, was known as what? A man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He's riding up to Jerusalem. He pauses and he knows the sin sickened condition of an entire city, and he weeps for them. Ecclesiastes tells us what in chapter 3? There is a time to weep, and there is a time to mourn. God creates us with emotion. It's even healthy to cry. I read this week, it's a gift from God to cry. Listen to this. According to biochemist and tear expert, we actually have tear experts in our world. He wrote a book called Crying the Mystery of Tears. Dr. William Frey says this, Crying, strictly in a scientific sense, is often a form of stress relief, relief caused by emotions and actually rids the body of toxins. It's a good thing. It's healthy. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to note, on average, men, you cry 1.4 times per month. Women... 5.3 times per month on average. Is, is crying wrong? No. We, we are, we are designed, we are created to what? To, to, to let our emotions out that way. Is that what Jesus is talking about entirely? Partially, yes. Not entirely. Reason is this. Crying in a sense is an eruption. But we want to pause on this subject of mourn. To mourn is what? To mourn is deeper than cry. To mourn, it's deeper than to cry. To mourn is intimately connected. Nine different Greek words throughout the New Testament for the word mourn. It is intimately connected to this word agonos, which is what? Agony. 
You watch a sad movie and you shed tears. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Perhaps the same physical response. But we want to look at something different. Why do we mourn? What is it that we mourn over? I don't know if you remember last week when I talked about the the order of the Beatitudes is very, very important. One builds upon the, the second, second builds upon the third. If you remember last week in verse 3, we learned what the poor in spirit. Realize that we are in and of ourselves spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing. We see our need for God. Now in verse 4 this week, because of our sin, because of our desperate need for a Savior, because of our sinfulness, we mourn over it. I want you to think of it like this. The second beatitude is the emotional response to the first beatitude. They are intimately connected. I want you to get that. The big idea of this verse is that we have got to come to a place in our lives that we grieve and we mourn and we have a heartfelt sorrow that comes as a result of recognizing our own sin. And then what? We repent or we turn from it. There's an action that is described here. We grieve, we mourn, we have sorrow as a result of recognizing our own sin. And thus we see the need to repent and turn from it. Jesus, in this particular beatitude, is talking about repentance of sin. I would go so far as to say this. There is not going to be repentance from sin unless you mourn over your sin. Why would you repent? What would be the purpose of repenting if you don't mourn over it? If you are not disgusted, as we just heard, I hate it what I was doing. Why would we repent if we don't mourn over it? So a great illustration of this in the in the book of of Second Corinthians. If you could turn with me there, let me just just briefly bring you up to speed. What's happening? The Apostle Paul discovers. Some serious, grievous sin that exists within a local church that he actually helped plant. Plant the church in Corinth. What happens is that sin can creep in and it was growing and it was infesting, it was infecting the rest of the body. First thing that Paul does, what any wise shepherd would do, he goes directly to them. And it's actually described in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, that I had a painful visit with you. This is not to slap him on the back and say, hey, hope everything's going okay. No, no, no. This is an acknowledgement and addressing of the subject of sin that exists in this body. In this context in 2 Corinthians, church at Corinth. Then he writes this letter. He writes a severe, he writes a stinging letter addressing the sin, a sexual sin that existed within this church of Corinth. And he calls them to repent. It was a hard written letter. But now it begins to make sense. If you look at chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8 
9 and 10. Listen to this. For godly grief, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief, godly sorrow, same translation, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness of this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishments. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, verse 13, we are comforted. Paul actually begins to explain what is happening here. Acknowledges, addresses that sin is present. And what? There's a brokenness and there's a sorrow that brings repentance. Mourning leads to change. And repentance, what? Repentance brings blessing. Repentance brings comforts. So here it is. It's not mourning over human circumstances. I didn't didn't get what I thought I was going to get. It has nothing to do with that. It is mourning over sin. We recognize what? The weight of it. Matter of fact, that word sorrow that is that is in Second Corinthians chapter seven, it's the it's the Greek word lupe. It literally translates heaviness because of the heaviness and the weight that is pressing on you. It leads to a changed life. We are what? We recognize this, we recognize the fact that the direction that I am heading in my life apart from sorrow, apart from repentance, the direction is completely disoriented. We learn what? The the, the condition that we are in, it is a critical condition. Our sins have sickened us. And so we recognize it, we mourn over it, we repent from it, we give it up, we give it in, and we turn entirely. That's the idea of what this young lady says when she says what? I, I, I cried my eyes out. I hated what I was doing. Can I pause and ask you this? Have you ever truly, have you ever truly been sorry for your sin? Not, not sorry because you got caught. Now you deal with the sting of consequence. Have you ever truly been sorry for, have you wept and have you cried alone between you and the Lord's? Have you ever ached and mourned? over your sinful, sin-filled condition before God's. Let, let, me, let me say this. In order that we ever truly understand this idea of being blessed, in order, before we ever understand this idea of blessing in life, we need to understand the first parts. We cannot be blessed until we mourn. However, what? We have to be careful. We are creatures of extreme. I've been reading on my, on my own personally, some of the history in First and Second Samuel. I thought it was quite interesting here when, when people acknowledge what happens is that we have the first extreme is that we are too easy on ourselves. We take grace. When Dahl would say, we take grace to a heretical extreme. And, and in the history in First and Second Samuel, 
you see Saul, King Saul, who refused to acknowledge and call his, his pride, his jealousy, his anger. He refused to call it sin. He just continually kind of just shoved it aside and moved on. He was too easy on himself. He refused to admit it, refused to confess it. What happens? He lost the kingdom. Wait, you're a... In fact, he committed suicides. He's too easy on himself. And then there's the opposite extreme. There's King David, who later on we see what? He's too hard on himself. In many respects, King David, in a sense, confessed, and yet he wallowed in it. He, in a sense, continued to be under the, the, the guilt, under the, 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 the misery. And he almost lost the kingdom. Eventually, David, King David, I mean, after God's own heart, he eventually strikes the perfect balance. When he pens the psalm of confession in Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God. He says, please blot out my transgressions. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He, he strikes the balance. He got it. Although David recognized his own sin, he also recognized that the, the fact that God cleanses, forgives, restores, and makes whiter than snow. So we have to be careful when we come to this subject of, of mourning that we're not too easy on ourselves like Saul lost the kingdom, not too hard on ourselves like David who almost lost the kingdom. When you and I mourn, we have to have this deep understanding. Remember, nothing else today, this whole subject of mourn, what it means, it means that we recognize the sinfulness of our own sin and the graciousness of God. That's what this idea is all about. The sinfulness, the weight, the lupe of our own sin and the graciousness of God. Thankfully, it continues. I love this part. For they shall be comforted. There's just something about this idea that we're not forgotten. We're not left alone. Now, what is this comfort? Is this someone coming to fluff your pillow behind you and bring you a a cold, ice cold drink? No, it's not that type of comfort. Be be assured, this, this is so much more. I don't know about you, but I love to know that true comfort comes to us very quickly, five different ways. The first way is this, through the Word of God. Here's where our comfort, okay, this is where we race. It says this in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, we, through patience and comfort of Scriptures, might have hope. The first place that we go, when we recognize what the heaviness, the sinfulness of our sin, we race to the Word of God and we are comforted there. Secondly, where else do we receive comfort but from the people of God? Every single one of you, I'm sure, have, have connected with someone on this. So grateful that someone has come alongside. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. We may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. We've gone through heartache and headache. We've experienced God's comfort. As a result, we're able to come alongside and wrap our arms around others and care for them and comfort them. We receive true comfort through the Word of God, through the people of God. Thirdly, through the Son of God. 
Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 14 and verses 1 and 3, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus himself speaks to me in those moments that we are balled up in the fetal position, in agony, agonize over our sin. And he says this to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because I am going and I am preparing a place for you. doesn't matter what you've done. There's no sin that is beyond God's grace and God's forgiveness. We also receive comfort from the Spirit of God. John chapter 16 and verse 7. I tell you the truth. Jesus is speaking and he says this, It is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the Helper, I love the translation of the old King James, he says the Comforter will not come to you. Jesus is right here with the disciples. And he said, I've got to go, because if I don't go, then the Comforter can't come. And you and I understand the comfort of, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes, and it's right there alongside of us in the midst of our agonists. Fifthly, and finally, we also receive comfort from the very person of God, from God Himself, God the Father. Second Corinthians chapter 1, again in verse 3, Blessed be God, the Father of mercies. I love this phrase, the God of all comforts. Oh, He sees you. He knows you. He knows the pain that you've experienced in the past. He knows that you've used that as a motivation to say, I'll do whatever I want to do. And then there's a recognizing of that. There's a weight that we can't battle any longer. And so we not only recognize what we are empty handed, we have nothing to offer, but now we weep and mourn, truly mourn. But then we are confident. Happy are the sad. Is that confusing? No, no, not. it's not confusing in the least. In short, what? Here it is. Be mournful. You step outside the parameters that God has established in His words. And you feel that weight. God has created you with a means to deal with this. That we mourn with the purpose of being comforted. We're comforted. We are most blessed. We have the opportunity this morning to get a first-hand, get a glimpse of, of why we can be comforted through Jesus. We, we get a glimpse today through the communion table of what happens when we we struggle under the weight of that sin. And rather than just living a life where we are crushed into nothingness, we have a reminder today, a visual reminder, an object lesson from God Himself that says this is why you can receive comfort. This is why you can be blessed. We understand the story that the truth of Scripture, when Jesus Christ was meeting in that last supper with the disciples. And, and it said very 
very clearly that they took bread and Jesus picked up a, a loaf of bread. It probably was not as puffy as this. It did not have, have yeast in it. It was unleavened bread. It was probably flat. And he took this and he held it up and he said, gentlemen, disciples, he said, my brothers, he said, this is a picture of my body. This is what's going to happen. And he took the bread and he broke it like this. And they didn't entirely understand. He's sitting in front of them. It was a picture of the sufferer, the suffering, the agony that he was going to face on the cross. He also, it says, after he broke the bread, took the cup. And he, he took the cup and he, and he poured out the fruits of the vine. And he said that this, this cup is a picture, it is a symbol of my blood that is going to be poured out for you. Just as I poured that, this is going to be poured out for you talked about the fact that it is with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us, that forgives us. We read earlier of Psalm 51 how David and all of his sin and all of the, the, the weight that Jesus Christ makes what? Purer and whiter than snow. The darkness, the blackness of sin in our hearts is washed through the blood of Jesus We have this reminder, we are given only two ordinances as a local church that we regularly remember, and that is communion, the bread and the cup, and baptism. Both both of them identify us to to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to hold on to that. In light of what we are trying to, to do as we maneuver through a very challenging time, we have this as a regular reminder that we don't do it alone. We don't have to. Very clear instruction. 1 Corinthians says that when we do this, we do this with great care. We don't do this flippantly or casually. We do this out of remembrance. Until the Lord comes, we do this out of remembrance. We also understand that there's a lot of false teaching. There's a lot of false doctrine that's out there today that says this literally is the body of Jesus Christ. No, this literally is a piece of bread. And this is, is juice. That's, just, that's But they're pictures. And their significance, they are of great weight. We need to remember that. It's tradition here, if we could use that word, at Big Woods, that the third Sunday of every month that we together as family receive this. And so I'm going to invite the elders to come up and they're going to serve you just for a note. We're going to do this a little bit differently than we normally do. So I'm going to ask, please be patient with us. As, as we negotiate a little bit of a, a change, we want you to remain seated, okay? I know a lot of times we would get up and we'd meet in areas and it just got kind of clouded and congested. So I want you to stay right where you're at. The gentlemen are going to come. The elders are going to come. And they're going to serve to you the bread first. And then we're going to pray over that and take that together. And then they're going to come and they're going to offer you the cup Um, and then we'll receive that together. Uh, Just a reminder that if you are not a member of Big Woods Bible Church, that's okay as long as you are a member of the family of God. If you have accepted and received the Lord Jesus Christ, this is for you. If you are not a believer, the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of his body for you would be meaningless. Then, Then I would remind you, this is not for you. There's no purpose in that. So pause in the quietness of your heart and receive this in just a moment. We'll pray and take it together as family.
Let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing on the bread. Father, as we come before you, we are most grateful for your love for us and for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you've given to us this reminder that we can regularly keep in front of our eyes and our ears and, Lord, even in in our own taste, where these senses are so powerful and they're a powerful reminder of what you have done for us in offering your body to be nailed to a cross, to suffer in a place that we deserve, that I deserve to suffer because of my sin. Father, I would ask, Lord, that we would take this bread with an understanding of what it means. And that, Lord, would motivate us to be very careful as we negotiate our way through life to keep you right before our eyes. I would ask, Lord, that you bless this bread to our bodies. In your name we pray. Amen. God's word says that I receive from the Lord, but I also deliver it to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night and when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you, Lord, for what it represents. We thank you, Lord, that it is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us, that washes us, that makes our hearts whiter than snow. Yes, he bless this to our bodies. Amen. It says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it, in remembrance of me. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I think it's Mark's gospel that records they sang a hymn when they finished that time in the upper room together. We're going to do that. May the Lord bless you. Stand with us, please, as we close. Let's uh, go out celebrating what the Lord has done in us.